we've sort of forgotten what the Constitution says about people having a right to due process and equal protection. And so you can't punish people because they're poor. Welcome back to A Steep Road to Freedom, a limited series podcast from the ACLU of Ohio. We envision a world where money no longer determines freedom from incarceration, where families remain together, not torn apart or indebted simply due to an arrest, where people are assumed innocent until proven guilty, and conditions of release are equitable, and pretrial detention is exceedingly rare. This is a podcast about the bail reform movement in the state of Ohio. I'm your host, Selena. And I'm your host, Malikta. Throughout the course of this podcast, We've covered the basics of bail reform and pretrial detention. We've spoke to people with real-world experience being held simply because they didn't have money to pay their bail. We've outlined the role of every player in the system and what kind of discretion each crucial stakeholder has in reforming and transforming the system for the better. This week, we're talking risk assessments and the pervasive use of data technology in our criminal legal systems. Topics will include risk assessment basics, bias in smart tech, tools used in the state of Ohio, and how some investments in risk algorithms are linked to the electronic monitoring industry. Risk assessments have been hailed as the answer to bail reform, igniting a fierce debate over whether an algorithm can truly achieve the goals of pretrial justice. We're seeing this debate happen right here in Ohio. People who can both agree that bail reform is desperately needed, you know, come down on different sides about risk assessments. Risk assessments are just simply algorithms created to predict whether a defendant will reappear in court or commit a new crime if and when they are released. They provide judges scores based on a set of factors, such as age of first arrest, criminal history, community ties, and employment. Today, over 60 jurisdictions use risk assessments in the U.S., including counties in Ohio. Later in this episode, we'll hear Malikta sit down with Dr. Steve DeMuth, a sociology professor at Bowling Green State University and an expert witness in the landmark Harris County case. So for background, Dr. Steve DeMuth donated his time to research misdemeanor arrest records in Harris County, Texas, the third largest jail system in the country. The work he did for the Civil Rights Corps of Washington, D.C. helped corroborate the claim that money bail in Harris County was, in fact, unconstitutional. His research and analysis were part of a class action lawsuit against the county for misdemeanor bail practices. In his analysis of the Harris County pretrial process data, Dr. DeMuth looked at how long it took for people who have a probable cause hearing and went before a judge to contest their bail. He found that the time between arrest and the probable cause hearing was usually within 24 hours. But instead of the requisite 48 hours to contest bail in front of the judge, some people were waiting a week or longer. As Dr. DeMuth said, quote, a considerable number of people waited longer than the legally allowable time and remained detained simply because they could not afford bail. The system was essentially a two-track system designed to elicit guilty pleas from poor people, end quote. So I was contacted in February 2017 by a Civil Rights Corps who led the case for the plaintiffs in Harris County, and I was asked to do a simple thing, a very simple thing. Uh, they, they wanted me originally to look at 
just how long it took for, for misdemeanor arrestees to get from arrest until before a magistrate for a bail hearing and then before a judge afterward. Basically, there are people who can't afford money bail to get released, and Harris County relied heavily on the use of a bail schedule to determine who was released from jail pretrial. And so I was asked to to analyze data of cases in Harris County over a period of about two years, and then to testify in court about how the process worked in Harris County. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your role as a witness and, and describing that from, again, and that expert perspective and what unfolded afterwards? So the case um, for me became, were they actually following the law in terms of the amount of time that people should have to spend in jail before they are in front of a judge? So there was, I think it was about 20% of arrestees, it took more than 24 hours to get in front of a magistrate. So they were detained for 24 hours. It was like half, I think half of the people who were detained uh, took more than 48 hours to get in front of a judge. It was essentially 48 hours of wealth-based detention. Because if you'd had money, you would have been able to pay the amount on the bail schedule and you would have been released. So anyone who's still detained after 48 hours is someone who has been, for the most part, detained because they don't have the money to pay the bail and remember, this is um, these were all misdemeanor cases, and their their bail schedule. Pretty much everyone is eligible for bail, and if they if they had money, they could pay. They could either pay that in cash, or they could pay a bail bondsman ten percent. So that was where the case started. So they have a pretrial services agency in Harris County. They had a risk assessment tool at the time. They interviewed arrestees and asked them information about you know how much money do you have, that basic kind of intake data some of its background information, like socio-demographic information, and then the other half are criminal justice things. So like, for example, they ask people, do you have a job? Uh, did you graduate from high school? Do you have a phone? Do you live with others or do you have your own residence? Um, they also ask questions like, have you ever been arrested before? Have you been convicted before? Have you ever failed to appear previously? Um, do you have a current active criminal justice case ongoing somewhere else? That information was supposed to be used by pretrial services to create a risk score that would then be passed on to the magistrate. It turned out that there were a lot of cases in which the pretrial services agency was actually recommending release on what's called a personal bond. So that's a non-financial bond. And to a T, you know, like 80% of the time, those recommendations were being ignored by the magistrates. So that was the first issue that we determined from that. The second part was that, you know, a lot of those indicators that are personal socioeconomic indicators in the risk assessment tool are pretty good proxies for poverty. And so what you found is if you just looked at the data, what you saw is that the people who got released from jail, they had much lower indigent scores than the people who were, remained detained in jail. The people who remain detained are much more likely to have those indicators of poverty. And if you actually look at the total risk score, on average, about two-thirds of the measures that make up that risk score were the poverty measures. So a bigger factor in determining risk was actually, it was more about you as an individual than it was about any sort of prior criminal behavior or failures to appear in the system. So prior to you coming there and doing that research, prior to the lawsuit being filed, Harris County, they have an established pretrial services program. 
They had a risk assessment score that, again, it was skewed. It was a reflection of poverty. It was a reflection of the systemic injustice within the system itself. And they also had judges and magistrates that were ignoring release recommendations. Is that correct? Correct. In situations where you have judges who don't want to release folks, are risk assessment scores a good way to balance that discretion? How do you feel about that, even though you just mentioned that they're truly just a reflection of poverty and indigency? Well, the risk assessment tool that they had they had been using, it was almost impossible to be poor and low risk at the same time because the number of points you got for not having a job or for not having a car or for not graduating from high school, those added up to the point where you couldn't even be considered what would be termed low risk. So even though these people might have had no criminal justice record in the past at all, you could accumulate enough points simply by having those characteristics of poverty that you would be considered a medium risk in their system. So the whole concept of risk is somewhat problematic because in that case, it wasn't really even talking about risk based on prior criminal justice experience. It was just based on you as an individual. You know, I think most judges have good intentions and magistrates are trying to make decisions. They don't have a lot of time. They don't have a lot of information and they're trying to do the best they can. But the reality is because we had no way of sort of measuring what they were actually taking into account, it's not surprising that all sorts of inconsistencies would creep in. Some of that based on race, gender, class, all sorts of other factors that could affect the decisions that judges make. The idea behind risk assessment was that, well, maybe we could come up with a way of using a standardized set of criteria that judges could go through or or pretrial services agencies could go through to create a checklist of factors that might be correlated with future failure to appear or future offending. And I mean, the argument was that that might be better than money. You know, so at least it's not a gut and at least it's not money because with the gut, then you don't know what's going on with money. You're relying on just their ability to pay. And so the idea was maybe we could move toward risk assessment. What they're most interested in in risk assessment is predicting offending. I mean, that's what they're really worried about. And they're really worried in particular about violent offending. So what you'll often hear is an anecdote about how somebody got out of jail on bail and they went out and committed some horrific offense. But the problem is those are very rare events and we're not very good at predicting them. So one of the problems with risk assessment is is that you're trying to predict the future and it's really hard to do that. So for example, there was recently a validation study of Kentucky. A pretrial service agency uses a risk assessment. I think it's the one that was created by the Arnold Foundation. And they published an assessment of how well this tool did in predicting failure to appear and predicting reoffending. And also they have a flag for violence, They're trying to predict violence while out on pretrial release. And it didn't perform very well. What this report said is that somehow it had good predictive validity, but the reality is it wasn't very accurate. But it turns out that of the people who got that flag, who were predicted to commit or be arrested for a violent crime, only 3% of those people actually committed or was arrested for the violent crime. And so what that means is that you would be doing that to 100 people and wrongly flagged 97 people to appropriately flag three people. And so then the question is, well, is that acceptable? Hardly anybody gets rearrested for violence. It doesn't really matter whether they got the flag or not. And so depending on how you present that information to judges can have a big effect on the way they think about risk. 
I think of this idea of judges being the ones that, in a sense, are the purveyors of this risk. It's a racialized conception. I mean, even outside of the tool, this idea of who is deviant or not, there's a long sociopolitical history of who is deemed violent, who is deemed risky, and there's so many subjective factors in there. Is it possible to truly validate these tools, even though you mentioned that there's a high probability that people who aren't very risky can be deemed violent? So the idea of validating a risk assessment tool, it's not that you shouldn't try to do that, but it's not as easy as it sounds. There's a fundamental problem in risk assessment, which involves the inputs to the model. You know, there's a real concern about whether or not risk assessment tools are racially biased. And if the society is racially biased, then the model itself will be racially biased. But ultimately, all the items that go into the model, the algorithm for risk assessment, are, are the product of subjective decisions. It's about, uh, you know, if there are racial differences in policing, if there are racial differences in adjudication, any of those differences um, will show up, and if that information is used in the model, that will, by definition, sort of perpetuate those racial biases. And so one of the concerns with risk assessment is that by putting this veneer of sort of quantitative analysis, using math, you know, using science makes it look more certain and more scientific and objective than it really is. So would you say that the algorithms are proxies for race and then risk assessments potentially could automate some of this, you know, deeply entrenched inequality? My opinion is that, that risk assessment is a serious potential problem because it's not clear whether or not using the tool would actually result in more fair decisions than what judges come up with. Uh, we know that the Arnold Foundation, which created the PSA tool that you mentioned, has also very significant investments in criminal supervisory control technology like ankle monitors, um, drones. So I know that there's a fear that some of this conservative interest in bail reform, uh, part of their motivations are that they can invest deeply into this surveillance technology, which will inevitably expand if we're releasing more folks. Do you have an opinion on this? Do you think that those those are out inflated fears, so to speak? I didn't know that, actually. I didn't know about that. Um, I mean, I do know that if you look at the research on conditions, things like supervision, electronic monitoring, drug tests, it doesn't really work. There's not a lot of evidence that it really does a lot. Electronic monitoring, it hasn't really been tested in the pretrial sphere, but it's pretty invasive and doesn't seem like it's the solution people might think it is. The real goal should be to get as many people out of jail as you possibly can and try to help them get to court. We find that jurisdictions that use that as their goal can actually be very successful. If you compared people who were able to be released because they could pay versus people who couldn't, you saw that for the people who could pay to get out, less than half of them actually were convicted. People who couldn't pay, like 80-some percent of them pled guilty within days. And that makes sense with what we know about being released, being able to access your lawyer, being able to participate in your defense that aligns to so much common sense knowledge around criminal defense. So if we don't want to overly rely on risk assessment tools or even over-monitor people, give them intrusive conditions, all the things that you talked about before, 
what alternatives exist that don't, you know, threaten this idea of judicial discretion and don't perpetuate any of the ableist and racial and gendered bias that's already rampant within the system. If you're on a misdemeanor, you will be released immediately on a small, unsecured bond, which means you don't have to pay it up front. There's a carve-out for the kinds of offenses that judges might be really concerned about. And so those would include things like domestic violence, DUI, if the person has a lot of prior experience of not appearing in court in the past. So basically those few kinds of cases where it's like about 15% of the misdemeanor cases in Harris County where you would go in front of a judge to figure out whether or not you should be released like everybody else on an unsecured bond. The presumption is that someone would be released except for a certain number of carve-out cases. It's sort of a realization that bail is a critical stage. What happens at a, the pretrial stage really matters for later outcomes. The goal is just to try to help people be successful, so to prioritize liberty. So you have these sort of three, you want to maximize liberty, you want to maximize the ability of the court to function, you want to maximize public safety. And so how do we best do that? So instead of erring on the side of just detaining everybody, instead saying let's release people unless there's some reason why we shouldn't release people. So instilling almost procedural safeguards for setting bail on the court side and then instituting some of these, you know, reminders, help with transportation, um, you know, incorporating things that would help people to reappear, ensure reappearance, as opposed to just detaining them during that pretrial period. We've sort of forgotten what the Constitution says about people having a right to due process and equal protection. And so you can't punish people because they're poor. You have to provide them with the same kind of access that you would provide everyone else when their liberty is at stake. So the goal should be, how do we get as many people out of jail as possible so that their lives aren't disrupted and still maintain public safety and a functioning court system? And it turns out that there are a lot of really innovative ways to do that. And it's not as hard as people might think, but it requires sort of changing our attitude and our goals around trying to help people, trying to be supportive of people to, to have them go through what is a probably the worst period of life. We have to be thinking about the bigger picture. Well, again, thank you for your tireless work. Thank you for your advocacy. And thank you for making sense of these complex topics. You're welcome. This week's episode is sponsored by The Bail Project. The Bail Project is an unprecedented effort to combat mass incarceration at the front end of the system. They pay bail for people in need, reuniting families, and restoring the presumption of innocence. Visit their site at bailproject.org. Okay, back to the show. We cannot simply compute ourselves out of the mass incarceration crisis. Risk algorithms reflect the well-documented disparities within the criminal legal system, including the fact that Black men are six times more likely to be incarcerated and Latino men are three times as likely to be incarcerated in comparison to their white peers. Blind allegiance to risk assessment tools will usher in a new era of data that constricts poor and working-class people, opportunities, and undercuts their civil rights. We cannot further institutionalize these disparities by providing political cover with the use of tools. Tools make errors. Algorithms contain biases like the people who create and employ them. And false positives can be the difference between freedom and incarceration. 
Risk assessment tools are well-documented to reproduce and perpetuate the race and class hierarchies they're built upon. We don't need to depend on a cash bail system and risk assessment tools when less harmful alternatives exist. For example, procedural safeguards for setting bail and wraparound services help to ensure that people appear in court. Risk assessment tools make ethical judges confront a nearly impossible task, wringing out a justice system designed to recreate existing class and race hierarchies. We need to be mindful of criminal justice reform that markets coercive supervision or appears too good to be true. As our colleague Claire Chevrier would say, we should not be cynical of reforms, but we should remain skeptical. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a project of the ACLU of Ohio. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Again, we're your co-hosts, Malik Tamalaku and Selena Cumming. And this podcast would not be made possible without our village of amazing colleagues, Claire Chevrier, James Kazmatka, and Jeff Miller. Music and editing by Dan Rogan. Mix and mastering by Sean Rule Hoffman. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Twitter at ACLU Ohio and on Facebook and Instagram at ACLUOH. Check out our bill website at ohbillreform.com. Thanks for listening.